Hi, everybody. Welcome to It's Always Saturn. This is a super long episode for good reason. We were having such a great conversation that we came back and had a second meeting about it. So without a lot of ado, because I just want you to be able to really sink into this episode, this is Chris Courtney Martin. They are a Philadelphia native, a poet, a screenwriter, a musician, and just a super cool person. I truly enjoyed talking to them, and I really hope that we become friends in real life. I want to be at that movie premiere one day with them. Please check out their book, The Book of IP or Idle Poems. That's out from Alien Buddha Press, and it's available on Amazon. They also currently have a short story rebuke, which you can find on Alien Buddha Press's YouTube being read live. Again, there is a trigger warning. That one's pretty dark. Anyway, please enjoy this delightful conversation. I know I did. So yeah, check them out however and wherever you can. Chris Courtney Martin. I am Christina Langell and it's always Saturn. So do you go by Chris or Chris Courtney or? I'm Chris. Chris. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I'm always Christina. So I mean, I, I know with Chris names, there's a lot of people calling you whatever they want to call you. <laughs> oh yeah I mean I get called Courtney I've been called Court you know I think people are just especially before I sort of like doubled down and be like hey I'm actually non-binary I think people were just more comfortable calling me the more feminine part of my name because I never really liked my 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 full first name and people just always butchered it so even before <laughs> even before I came <laughs> binary I was just like please just call me Chris so you grew up in Philadelphia area yes I did I was born in Philadelphia and I flip-flopped a little for my early life between Philadelphia and Washington State I moved back and forth a couple times but I came back you know I I did like kindergarten through third grade there as well and then I went I was in Washington kindergarten through second grade I was in Washington for third grade and then I came back and did my fourth and fifth grade for homeschool. And then I got in a masterman and that was where I went through graduation and went to Drexel. So Philly is very much, you know, very much home base for me. Do you, so right now you're living in, well, you're in North Carolina right now. Yes. Yes. Um, I'm staying with my dad who is down here and that side of the family's from the South. They're actually from, um, South Carolina, but my dad's up in in North Carolina, which is where he worked, and he's retired now. So just sort of spending some time with him and riding out the multiple pandemics <laughs> that we, that we are facing. It's just sort of better to be in a smaller town than in a big city during that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. you know, it just made sense. Yeah, that does make make sense. I grew up in like Westchester area. So outside of Philly and after college, I moved out to Los Angeles and I cannot imagine writing out the pandemic there. (laughs) Yeah. So that's where I was up until, I guess it was, it was April or May was when I came, came down here, but I was in Los Angeles for the past four years. I want to say the top of 2018 up until like a few months ago. Mm-hmm. so that stuff was it was getting kind of heavy out there <laughs> a lot of <laughs> a lot of stuff went down 
and um, I just kind of had to to get out of Dodge. It's just it's a it's 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 a tough city. And I know people say Philly is a tough city, and it is. But there's just a bunch of stuff that happens in LA that makes no sense. Like I I was attacked multiple times out there. Oh, no. It's just like I'm not coming back here until I'm in a position where like people just I I can be isolated for real. You know, if I come back for work because I'm just really over <laughs> a lot of what I went through there if if the book is is you know no indication of that then yeah yeah no I definitely got that from the book I was thinking the whole time like my my experience in Los Angeles I wasn't working in the film industry at all and that was still very much the overwhelming like filter that you're kind of living in when you're out there and I probably had like the worst possible view of Los Angeles you could have because I was working in a middle school in South Central, which is like a whole, you know, sort of like problematic environment in its own right. There's so many well-intentioned or whatever, like philanthropic projects trying to work at the schools as opposed to, you know, money being put into the actual schools instead of these nonprofits. So it's like really hard to really generate anything lasting and it feels like oh like this isn't what I was hoping like I thought I'd be doing when I signed up for this idea but then also like you're just living with the constant juxtaposition of where you are and like just the Hollywood sign looming over all the time it's just like this it was such it felt like such a segregated city to me because where I worked in South Central was like very much it was uh, predominantly black area and I lived in Koreatown which was very predominantly Korean obviously and there was just not a lot of moving between worlds that I saw when I lived there so I had like a very I don't know I had a, had a negative takeaway from it yeah I so I I used to stay in Lamert Park that was where I was for four years and honestly part of the reason why I really took to that neighborhood is because it kind of reminded me of West Philly just being you know being a a black artist it's kind of a a black arts community even though it's got it's there are a lot of unhoused individuals there who were or are artists and people kind of (laughs) they look at it a certain way and it's it's funny I was actually staying at a hostel in um, San Gabriel when I found this place in San Gabriel Valley which is a predominantly East Asian sort of neighborhood and I came down in a lift or something because I don't I don't drive I still don't drive and which you know (laughs) doing LA not driving is yeah probably why I had such a hard time but um I uh, and and that's not for lack of trying I just have different you know like anxiety and things like that that make it kind of a disability thing I was being driven down there in a lift and the driver is this this um this East Asian guy and he was like so what are you doing down here and I was like oh I'm about to look at a place and he was like here why <laughs> so I definitely I I sort of sort of absolutely understand that sort of segregated feeling that sort of de facto segregation which is very much sort of what Philly is and I I, one of my um, my film projects that's uh, in the work charcuterie is very much about that and just the gentrification of it and um, what happens when these little enclaves like run up against each other and then one starts to trickle into the other and people are 
sort of stepping on each other's toes. But it's just, it's very bizarre, you know, living in Lemur Park, which I still love, I still miss. And uh, then, you know, going to like an Oscars soiree or whatever, the owner of the management companies place on Abbott Kenny in Venice. And just, it's like almost like two, and let alone like going into the hills or Malibu, which I've never actually been to Malibu. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> but I but I've been like along the PCH which is close enough so yeah it's it's almost like you're touring a, the span of a, a country as opposed to a city and it's it's outskirts very very bizarre and I kind of feel like this this might be like the film industry part that I took away from it but since it's such a transplant city I always got the feeling that people were there for even just driving like the way that the traffic goes it's like oh everybody's like very much just kind of concerned with themselves here and self-serving which sounds like really mean to say about a whole city and I'm sure there's a lot of lovely people there but that's just like a vibe that I always got from living there and it just there's just something off-putting about it but I have to imagine it comes from the film industry and everyone you know they came there for a reason like nope there's not a lot of people in LA who are from LA oh absolutely and just that it's so funny you say that because I just want to say to anybody who's listening someone in LA says your family your sister your brother your sibling that's not true (laughs) (laughs) that's not true you're especially if it's like an entertainment industry sort of thing now I know I being from Philly when I say I mean it a certain way because you know we're brotherly love sisterly affection and as a non-binary person I say siblingly holding it down and that just means something very different that means like hey if I'm not hungry and you're hungry we're either going to be hungry together or we're both eating like I'm going to split what I have and we're going to both just have a little bit or you know I'm giving you know what I mean like mm-hmm. that's the kind of mentality that Philly which is a very radical very progressive sort of city that has really just like battled being a speck of blue in a red state until it just flipped blue people looking out for each other it being a food culture there being so many sort of food-based philanthropies like restaurants where you give a little extra and then the next person who comes in who doesn't have enough can just get a slice of pizza on Mm -hmm. you and um (laughs) LA is very much not like that and it was just it's extremely heartbreaking and I think they kind of it's almost like a let's weed out the yokels kind of mentality and you know let's see who actually trusts people here because that's who I'm gonna knock out the box so yeah that's just my little spiel well it sounds well earned like (laughs) (laughs) I I think I don't know that's one thing I love about trying to build community here and take a a brief moment to thank Philadelphia on behalf of the rest of the state, because some of us are progressive in the red zone. (laughs) Just like, thank God so many people live there. (laughs) It feels like, oh, how could this state possibly go blue? And then, oh, it's okay. Philadelphia, (laughs) Philadelphia is still here. (laughs) But yeah, community here and I guess that leads to kind of a question of how your orientation is to filmmaking outside of Los Angeles, if, if that is a viable pursuit. 
Well, something I've always wanted to do, my end goal, because my motto sort of has been craft of conscience, you know, just having come out of the, the, the Drexel program and really my only foray into filmmaking, just having been student films there before I came to LA to really, or, you know, started collaborating with people in LA to, to get more professional level projects off the ground. Something I always wanted to do was to sort of bring it back home and make Philadelphia a satellite city for, you know, Hollywood. They've got, you know, like New Orleans is like the horror satellite. You've got Atlanta, which is very vibrant, particular for, for, for Black media. And a lot of that is filmed. And even Marvel started using a lot of the green spaces in Georgia where else they would go to like Ireland or something. Um, in, in previous days. So, you know, Pennsylvania, what people, a lot of people don't know is a tax incentive. And that's something I've been trying to, to take advantage of as a producer too. Very, very attractive for filmmakers. And I think people in particular just have this relationship with Philly, which is changing now with like the Abbott elementaries and the concrete cowboys and stuff like that. It's people are starting to see see the value in it and you know Shirley Ralph is somebody that I've worked with so I'm very very proud of her and and that Emmy that long 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 overdue Emmy and just the success Quinta I don't know Quinta but it's like anyone coming out of West Philly and making it to that Emmy stage is just going to get all the snaps and claps from me because people aren't supposed to make it out of West Philly and <laughs> when they when they do a lot of times if you're sort of it's like West Philly doesn't quite make it out of them and that just puts puts us sometimes in like a weird position just having to mitigate where we came from with these sort of very stuffy success spaces but there are there are a lot of people out there doing it Kiara Alegria Hudes is incredible and I was just blessed enough to have met her through Philadelphia Young Playwrights I feel like I go on these these tangents I am so sorry oh you're good (laughs) (laughs) Philadelphia has always sort of you know and I think it's kind of the spirit of what Ben Franklin like intended you know with him being sort of Yes, being in that class of sort of problematic white men who <laughs> founded the country, but he was he was the best of them. That and sort of just like the the the, the Quaker spirit and stuff like that that kind of just made it into the ethos of Philadelphia. W H Y Y PBS. It's like if you have nothing, you have education in some form like our public broadcast is I want to say bar none like just head and shoulders above the rest of what I've seen in the country and um, not that I've been like all over but I've been enough places where it's like if you don't have anything but just a tv that gets basic stations you can learn something every day that's the spirit of the city and part of the reason why I love it so much and why I see so much potential in it and um, why I know that with or without me, it's going to be one of those, one of those satellites is going to be recognized as a, a think tank and not sort of the, the brain, a brain drain space that it's been. And I know Night Shyamalan has really been trying to, but uh, there's enough of us sort of in this industry that if we kind of band it together, I think we could really make something happen. I do too. And I think 
this is hopefully not too cynical of a thought. I do think that a lot of the the reality of climate change is that a lot of the places that we want to do things are not necessarily places where it's going to be like a sustainable good idea to keep trying to do things. So, you know, cities like Philadelphia or even thinking about, you know, Harrisburg, where I'm living is like growing and growing like, oh, this might like look very different in 15 years. Like this might be a lot more of a a noteworthy place for better or worse, I guess. But absolutely, yeah. I've had horror on the brain because they, we have a a film contest called Bid Jam in Central Pennsylvania that um, they do various uh, contests throughout the year. But most of them are like forty eight hour contests where they give the yeah. theme and then you have forty eight hours to make a short film. And currently, I'm working on a film with my writing partner that's a thirteen day horror challenge, and we've never made any kind of film at all we, we write fiction together so it's like we have no idea what we're doing but it's really cool to see that they have these things and I've seen really decent stuff come out of it where it's like oh yeah for sure and any professional is really going to say like the best way to sort of do film is to do film and people who really have like no like don't necessarily have a context for filmmaking who just decide to make a film are probably going to be in a slightly better position than people who have sort of studied it in theory but haven't really gotten to produce anything so I think that that's absolutely wonderful and like just best of luck with that I'd love to you know when it's done see a link or thank you I'll definitely send it to you it's been fun so far we haven't filmed anything but we've written out our our script and stuff like that which brings me to a big question that I've been thinking as I look through your stuff and um, see that you, you've always been a writer, you've been writing poetry your whole life. And for me, the idea, for whatever reason, like now, now I do improv and stuff. And I'm like, I wish I had realized that this is an avenue I could have gone down when I was younger. But I, I admire so much that you're studying like screenwriting and playwriting right off the bat that you were like, this is a goal that I can have. And like, it's not just like far away on a screen somewhere. So I'm wondering like, what, what drew you to, to film as like a primary as like your home base as a writer? It's actually, it was kind of in a word like serendipity. It's quite funny. I actually put the poetry and prose down for a minute and some time. And it's kind of like once you dedicate your life to film and TV, a lot of the time there is not room for much else, including like self-care. <laughs> so um, a friend of mine, a friend and collaborator of mine, a brilliant director named Star Victoria, we had a conversation last fall, you know, because she was aware that I was going through some things in the industry. And I was kind of venting about them on social media in a certain way. And she kind of pulled me aside and was like, hey, you know, I just, maybe you should try and like express this through like poetry or something on a Tumblr or something. Because, you know, people in the industry are not necessarily always going to be sympathetic and you know, you don't know how people are going to take things and use them against you. And so I was like, I haven't written poetry since I was a kid. Like that, like emo stuff I used to do in my journal, share with, <laughs> but only with like the Masterman Lit Mag. And then, you know, six months later, here I am back at it. But I sort of 
while I was doing that sort of thing in high school, I was part of a program called the uh, Philadelphia Young Playwrights, which is a beautiful, beautiful program. It's yielded alums such as Kiara Alegria, who does, you know, In the Heights, Bevo, and is a, a very talented author and playwright herself. And was one of the mentors the one of the years I did it one summer. We actually got to see In the Heights on Broadway, which was just, it blew my mind. Her, Adam Goldberg, who created The Goldbergs, um, I read was an alum of this program. I did that program for all four years of high school. And I was just, you know, I loved TV. I was an escapist kid. You know, I did a lot of reading and stuff as a kid too. But really once I started, once I started at Masterman, I was sort of so inundated with like what I had to read from school that when I got home, a lot of the escapism, I kind of just had to like turn off and watch TV. And, and of course I did my own writing. Like I wanted to be a novelist when I was a kid too. But more and more, I just sort of fell into, especially like the weird like IFC and Sundance stuff, which I probably should not have been watching at that age. <laughs> <laughs> it really sort of, it really sort of yielded some very like intense <laughs> narratives for a, a teenager to be presenting to, to a, a workshop of other like 14, 15 year olds. I placed my first year, my freshman year, I did this little like Romeo and Juliet set in the seventies about this black girl and this Jewish boy. And it had like a Greek chorus or whatever. And that place, I can't remember what place it got, but I was just like, wow, this is my first shot at this and it placed, I'm gonna keep doing this. And then my second year, I <laughs> did a very intense sort of very sort of melodramatic piece. I don't even remember what I called it, but it's the story that sort of stayed with me and eventually evolved into a script called Prodigal, which I just, you know, came under a shopping agreement with that and that project's being built right now. Um, so that's, I've been kind of calling it my magnum opus because it came to me when I was like 16 and it was very intense and it only got more intense with time. So that year I didn't place. <laughs> I think the content was a little too much. The next couple of years I placed too. And my junior year, I did this, um, this play called Peach Dear Prudence, which was about a, a, a Black autistic girl on death row who was falsely accused of, of harming the, you know, killing a, a child who was part of this family that her family worked for. And she communicated by singing Beatles lyrics and only by singing Beatles lyrics. And this was, I've always sort of felt honestly like a, and this is where serendipity kind of comes into it. I recently came to discover that I am an autistic person. And the process of that is very fraught a lot of the time because people get misdiagnosed with all sorts of things. It's a lot high, harder for people of color, especially Black people and people assigned female at birth to be correctly identified. And the test for it is very expensive as well. But the community of adult autistics, they explain all of this and provide a lot of sources and 
are very open to people being able to look at this research and self-identify and say, you know what? This sounds like me and this makes my life make sense. So I, at this point, have been able to sort of self-identify and I plan on officially getting, getting tested when that's reasonable for me to do. But I've always sort of just felt this instinctual kinship with the autistic community and turns out I'm part of it. So that placed, I can't remember if it was like a second place winner or what, but it was selected for a stage reading at the Wilma Theater. I, it got to be put up on its on its feet with these professional actors and there was like a wine and cheese reception and the mayor showed up and <laughs> there's actually like a picture of me and Michael Nutter from that night and I very distinctly remember when I told my family about it them saying what I didn't even know you were like doing this <laughs> so it's like it's like at the point where it becomes where it becomes real for other people sometimes it's when it becomes real for your family because they always knew that I would spend my free time writing but it was sort of like a, oh well right on the side major in business or be a doctor or be a lawyer it's like oh so this is real so <laughs> it's probably going to be real and that's you know to be fair, I, I do have one aunt who was very supportive, my aunt Barbara, always very supportive of me as a writer. That really was the point where it kind of became real. That following, it was either the same year or the following year, like around college time, I um, got something, I don't know if Drexel does this anymore, but they had something called the VIP application. And a lot of masculine kids got the VIP application. It's like, you know, mastermind is more or less like a feeder for pen, like a big, big, big <laughs> portion of my graduating class went to, went to University of Penn. And that's just sort of the tradition. I didn't really know if I wanted to do that. They did have creative writing, but Drexel, which oddly enough, I rode past every time I took a certain bus route, I would see the, 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 the dragon mascot on the, the, the DAC center. And, um, you know, I had a cousin who went there too, but I hadn't really thought about it until they sent me this application. And I'm just like, okay, what is this? Because college is a lot right now. I was going through, I was going through it. <laughs> and I was like, college is a lot right now. And I'm just going to sort of feel my way through it because I didn't really have that kind of support from my family. College was sort of my responsibility to figure out. And so I'm scrolling their list of majors and I see screenwriting and playwriting and I'm like well I'll be dang like I had no idea that there was a school in Philly let alone a school in Philly that's like along the bus route from from where I live that um where I could study this so I applied and I got in at that point we had a couple of like we had a college fair or something and they do like on-site admissions too. So I was like, let me just, in case I can't afford this or in case something happens, let me just like walk around and see who likes me. So I got on-site acceptance to Rosemont and on-site acceptance to Lincoln. And I was like, okay, so if Drexel doesn't work out, fine. But not only did Drexel work out, I ended up getting the Liberty Scholarship, which was full tuition. And I was just like, okay, the universe is kind of, 
doing something here. So this just sort of worked out perfectly. Um, even though, you know, I did have to take out loans for room and board, which are now forgiven, thank God. It's funny that we actually, I, I had to kind of make a choice because with screenwriting and playwriting, you kind of choose a track. And I had, I'd come up doing playwriting in high school, but it just made sense for me to pursue screenwriting. I was like, I love theater, but I consume a lot more film and TV. And I just think the way that I do things is just more conducive to film and TV. The kinds of stories I want to tell are more conducive to film and TV. So I switched to that concentration. And so I majored in screenwriting, playwriting, got a dual minors in film and video and art history. And art history kind of just like threw me for a loop. I fell in love with it and did not expect to. And I was actually pursuing a third minor in Africana studies but I was like one class away the final class the professor was like I have a zero tolerance policy for lateness and I was coming directly from my work study job so I would have been like one or two minutes late so I just had to drop the class and um, I'm like I'm a little petty I feel like I would just take another course just to to get that because I was one away yeah that was sort of the um academic part of the journey and with Drexel which is a, a, a very special university you know I kind of think of it as like the USC of the east even though people would think that was Tish the way that they really incorporate industry experience while you're studying is so valuable like I had nine months of of internships uh, you know we have a a three uh, a six-month period of co-op built in to our undergrad just period that was done in philadelphia at a a, a company called keystone pictures but I did this program the summer between my junior my sophomore and junior year called drexel in la and I actually got to, with like, I guess like 50 of my classmates or so, fly out to Los Angeles for summer and intern during the day. I worked at this company called 1821 Pictures. I don't know if they're, I don't think they're around anymore, but they did like machete kills and they worked with Stan Lee on this graphic novel called Romeo and Juliet after the war and uh, RIP Stan Lee. And um, that was up on Beverly Drive in Beverly Hills. So I got to intern there as my first internship because co-op started after that. And that was just a really, really valuable experience. You know, that was where I learned how to do script coverage, which I still do, um, giving notes on screenplays and things like that professionally. So, yeah. Um, that was kind of the educational trajectory and then the postgraduate professional that was just a, a little bit of a roller coaster and serendipity had a lot to do with that as well <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite children's books when I was little was called serendipity and it was about a a little some sort of sea monster so that's oh. whenever someone uses the word serendipity I picture this <laughs> This little sea monster just kind of going through people's lives, creating magic. <laughs> That's so cute. Um, I feel like I have like 
10,000 branches of questions to ask based on that. So I'm trying to pick which one, which I always think listening to interviews, I'm always wondering, oh, they had like, oh, they should have asked about that thing. Or like, we should have gone down that road, but you can't, I guess you can't take them all. I'm going to start with the first one I thought of, which is going back a little bit. So when you were talking about the Beatles, because I had written in my notes. So you have this Dear Prudence, where the main characters saying everything in Beatles lyrics. And I noticed in your one poem, you mentioned when, when they grew out their bowl cuts and no one mentions when, and she's so heavy that the one in the glasses abhors a woman who can put her weight behind a punch. Yeah, Carpe Diem <laughs> was that, that poem. Yeah, so that that really, it struck me. And it was funny because when, when I first saw you read, that was a, a Zoom reading and I had noticed in someone else's background on their camera that they had a poster of the Beatles behind them. And it was just like, serendipitous but also funny because it wasn't like the best light of the Beatles in in your poem Carpe Diem so it's just like a funny little moment for me yeah I was so I was a pretty big like I have a pretty eclectic music taste and I I sing and I rap and write songs and that's something I've been doing since I was a kid too and I was a huge Beatles fan and then I kind of had one of those heartbreak moments where I came across some information, you know, on Tumblr, which is just not going to let you have a favorite anyone or anything because everybody's horrible. (laughs) But I came across some heartbreaking information about John Lennon allegedly being abusive to his partners. And that really sort of messed with me a little bit because She's So Heavy was like one of my favorite songs and I have a you know the music you can't really escape it (laughs) I'm one of those people where I try not to be like one of those you can't separate you know separate the art from the artist and like if if someone's awful I really just don't want to be part of like whitewashing their legacy but those are the there's also three other guys and it's just the music's going to be around forever so it does kind of break my heart every time I hear one of those songs but that was um almost like a almost like a a sort of a copping to one of my former faves being problematic in a way and it kind of made me angry to 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 find that out I do something similar in a poem called the Lovecrafts. Um, that was my next question. Okay, awesome. <laughs> this is, yeah. Okay. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you to get excited. No, no, no. I'm, and I didn't know if you knew that you, you knew that one because that one's not in the book. But I was very familiar with H.P. Lovecraft, and you know what the mainstream culture kind of does is incepts these people that kind of preload heroes into you and you engage with their work or work that's inspired by them and all everyone wants to talk about is what they've done for the culture but they happen to like neglect that they were abusive or wrote Nazi letters you know what I mean and you find that out later and you're like wow so the very first time I, because Lovecraftian horror is like, it's still something that people celebrate, you know, in, a, in, in both lights. We have Lovecraft Country, but we've also got um, 
the film Glorious, which is Lovecraftian. And I actually know some people who are involved with that who are just wonderful people. Also, you know, people who are ethnic minorities and just we cannot escape engaging with these people. It's just preloaded into if you love horror, you have to engage with H.P. Lovecraft in a certain way. And it was actually a professor of mine um, when he asked me like some of my like some of my influences or whatever and horror because I was really just starting to like write that sort of that sort of thing, um, having the freedom to write that even though I've been enjoying it. And I mentioned Lovecraft just sort of like off the top because just that sort of creature horror that he is really known for, you know, the Lovecraftian eldritch sort of stuff, that sort of style. And this professor goes, oh, I'm really surprised you would say that. And I'm like, what? He was like, well, you know, just the the race stuff. And I was like, what race stuff? So <laughs> I had to go do, I had to go do my research. And it turned out a brilliant author um, who won a, I, I cannot remember the name of the award, but it was this, this Black woman who won this like really big deal genre award. And the bust was of H.P. Lovecraft. And a friend of hers actually had to take her aside and be like, hey, you know, this guy was actually like a virulent white supremacist, like Nazi lover, right? And it's just, it's so awful because it's like, it's almost like we have a responsibility to know that as people of color or, you know, Jewish people or anybody who would be hated by that type of person. It's like, well, how are we really supposed to? Because that's not really what's highlighted. And when you go back and you read certain ex, you know, they're, the stuff they're, that they're sharing in the classroom and the stuff that they're sharing is dancing around all of the, like, the, the, the bigoted words and things like that. So it's almost like we internalize a sense of blame for not knowing, but also the history was sanitized before we were told this is somebody we should be admiring and not really given so many examples of people who, let alone not like that, but are representative of us, you know, it's just, it's almost like we're set up for a heartbreak. Mm -hmm. I wondered, I wrote down a note, Lovecraft country, (laughs) and then in parentheses, I wrote white author because I read the novel Lovecraft country few years ago like before the show came out and then I didn't end up watching the whole show I think I just got distracted and it (laughs) fell off my radar but but I was really surprised when I read the novel I was like oh a white guy wrote this and like also isn't this like it's an interesting choice I try to be aware as a white author of like what stories I'm trying to tell and whether or not it's my place to try to tell them and I did enjoy the book, but I also, you know, it's kind of the same way. Like I'll, I'll read things that are written first person, female perspective by like a very cisgender man. And I'm like, eh, that's an interesting choice that you made there to try to embody someone that you maybe can't as well as a, a female author might've told that story, but I, I don't want to limit people or create boundaries on people's creativity, but I, I guess it's just a general topic. I've written down like I wonder what you thought of that particular yeah. facet of Lovecraft. 
so I'm very so I'm a huge fan of Misha Green not only Lovecraft Country but Underground which was just Underground was just so disserviced by the network it was on and um it seems like there were actually like some sort of conservative like machinations behind how that was treated via the network because it was just a brilliant masterpiece but Misha Green it's just one of those once in a generation sort of talents so this show being put in her hands it really really did something to reclaim it in certain ways you know and I didn't get to read the novel to be to be fair. And of course, if it, if it inspired a TV show like that, there had to be some merit to it. So maybe sort of on the divine scale of things, that was just sort of how it had to happen. Because who knows how that novel would have done, how people would have accepted it if it were written by a Black person. Because um, there are just some things that the mainstream doesn't want to hear from us, but if they hear it from a white person, it's, oh, so progressive. Good job being this empathetic, you. Um, but when it's a Black person, it's kind of just like angry, bitter, divisive, all those. Uh, I can't think of the name of the book, but there's a book that people always talk about. It's like, it's a white lady telling white people how to be less racist. And it's like, well, you could read the literally hundreds of books that black people have written for decades explaining racism (laughs) okay glad this white lady made the new york times bestseller or whatever yeah and that's definitely something it's like as as awful as that is in, in in pervasive as it is in literature hollywood has been playing some games too so just the fact that misha green was able to do what she did with it i know was no small feat and I know was just in a divine act um and just the the way that she included like Gil Scott Heron and all sorts of just beautiful cultural references that really did sort of bring it back to be rooted in blackness and not just like a interpretation of blackness from somebody who's not of it Uh, I have a a lot of respect for that. People have had their critiques of it and those critiques are valid too, you know, specifically around how uh, the indigenous two-spirit character was treated and Misha Green copped to that and apologized and talked about how she could do better. And so that, I just... She's like a perfect creator to me, like a, a perfect creator showrunner <laughs> as far as, because also who knows how much of that came from, much of the, how much of the problems came from her versus, or her her room versus stuff that execs had to have in. Um, we don't really talk about that, but yeah, yeah. Well, that's cool. I mean, that, that makes me want to go back and rewatch the show. And I did, like, I didn't think it was a, a bad book by any means but I was thinking about it when I was your poem reminded me of just like how problematic H.P. Lovecraft is and how that topic was for me the most I'd ever explored it was reading that book and then I was surprised when I was like oh wait and it was written by you know a white person so which I guess it's also good that people are you know being self-reflective and thinking about those kinds of 
figures in, in history either way. I read, I think it was an essay of yours online about um, talking about comps and you mentioned Jordan Peele and Guillermo del Toro. One thing I really appreciated, I guess, especially in the Jordan Peele connection, one thing that struck me thinking about it is that in your poetry, I was really blown away hearing you read the first time by the fact that I was able to like, laugh, like straight up laugh out loud during a poem, which is rare. As, as you know, poems aren't always humorous, but at the same time, you're tackling these topics and, and, you know, in the next line, the next phrase, it could be like just a, a very serious and impactful phrase following something where I'm laughing. And that's something I really appreciate about horror as a genre and obviously not all horror. Some of it's just straight up dark or straight up scary, but the ability to lace humor into something that is addressing like our human shadow is so cool. And I, I see that in your poetry. No, I am. <laughs> and I'm really glad that that's something you appreciate about it. Thank you so much. Like everything that I do really, you know, when I pitch myself in these meetings, I talk about how everything I do has a little bit of humor in it. You know, going back to that, that reading at the Wilma, the scene that I wanted to do was one of the, the funniest scenes. And the dramaturg said, you know, I just think it would miss, you know, misfire on the tone of the overall play. But, um, you know, with, with when I got to take Pill Horse out to Urban World, which is where I got grand prize for the screenplay, I really got to stick by that, that model that I always wanted to do. Because humor just does something. It just gets into people viscerally. And, you know, there are other things I do that too, but humor, it, it, it alleviates a lot of things. So, when I um, I selected really the funniest scene from that and people were, they really dug it. And I think that's possibly why it was so well received. And I just, culturally, we talk about like laughing to keep from crying. And that is very specific and very part and parcel, I think, to the Black community. Um, anybody who is, you know, we're not, we're, we, we will, we will, make jokes about a lot of different things <laughs> you know what I mean because it's kind of like that's how you keep going and it's just it's part of the culture it's one of my favorite parts about the culture you know you know and and not in the sense of like punching down at anybody or anything like that but sort of more in the the like Richard Pryor kind of sense and I was fortunate enough to 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 connect with Rain Pryor through uh, Philadelphia and playwrights, so that just really, really made my life too. Yeah, the humor of it all—it almost sort of is like a pressure valve, if you think about it. And you know, that's the direction that I went with the Charcuterie Project, which is a horror comedy. And I say, you know, Jordan Peele, because I've been a huge fan of Jordan Peele and Keegan-Michael Key since they were on Mad TV. Mm -hmm. And I say when Get Out came out, because the story had been with me since before then. Um, it was based on, on something that I saw about West Philly High School being turned into luxury lofts or whatever. And some, you know, there was a, a news article from back home that a friend shared. But when Get Out came out, I said, okay, now I feel like I can tell this story in a way where it will be received. And 
humor, you know, and, and something that kind of got under people's skin with Get Out is that it was sort of deemed a comedy when it just had moments of humor in it, but it was very much like a horror and it, and, you know, maybe that just allowed like some of the hoity-toitier sort of awards vehicles to accept it more. But I also think that who is being laughed at in horror or, or in, in comedy, that really changes how it's received. And I feel like you can only, you can only laugh at certain things and in certain ways. Otherwise, it's considered a little too unfair. Like, for example, if you really sort of ridicule white supremacists in a certain way, then you, it's considered you stooping. You know what I'm saying? There also there always has to be a little bit of self-deprecation there or something in order for the mainstream to really accept it. But where Jordan Peele really shook the table is that he took a story that I know was was deeply personal and he displayed it in a way that I think really just allowed a lot of different people to relate to it on a lot of different ways. So like, for example white people might have considered it a comedy because it's so ridiculous right like oh nobody's nobody's doing this and I've gotten you know similar notes about you know similar projects it's like yeah you know it's funny it's very broad right because it's ridiculous that white people would be doing this and yet now we have the Jeffrey Dahmer story yet again like the (laughs) iteration of that And we really do have to (laughs) reckon with the seriousness of like what people have been able to get away with under white supremacy, which is literally anything they want to black and brown people. So Mm -hmm. it's like on one hand, like deeming it a comedy, like, oh, this is ridiculous. It's satire, it's blown out, it's super hyperbolic. It makes sort of the mainstream comfortable in that, oh, okay, you know, it's allegory, but the more you sort of root that in, well, actually, this is similar to things that really have gone on. That's when people start saying, oh, this might like incite a riot or something, (laughs) but it's really just telling the truth. I I think like the filmmaker or a writer has so much impact in being able to do this, but thinking about if you're looking at it, as a reflection or like which characters you're empathizing with when you watch that, because it wouldn't occur to me to like, <laughs> obviously I'm a white person, but like, I've never, like, I wouldn't watch that and think about like, Oh, I would never do that. Like I kind of watched that and thought about like, Oh, like this, this is saying something about how people feel like yeah. whether or not the actual thing that's <laughs> happening is something that happened. This is the way that like the way that our system working is making people feel and and literally abusing them not just like their feelings but like just horror you know that is interesting the way that it opens up a conversation but also hadn't thought about that that people watch it and are able to palette it 
more because they're thinking oh I wouldn't actually do that yeah it's just it's where the laughs come from it's almost like a two-tiered thing it's like oh we're laughing because this is so ridiculous versus oh we're laughing because this is so real and relatable and this is stuff we talk about in the barbershops or in the hair salon and we didn't think we would see this on screen Mm -hmm. but it's yeah so I do think that's kind of a one-two punch that way and I do think that's a very smart way to sort of go about this social horror this elevated horror and the way you think about it most horror until we really started getting to like the schlocky stuff, which we all love. But most horror really was sort of an, an allegory for sort of social fears and things like that. Like, you know, Dracula with Eastern Euro- fears about Eastern Europeans and, you know, uh, just certain creatures being coded to represent certain groups or certain ideals and stuff that sort of the mainstream were afraid of and just talking about cinema you know night of the living dead was about as as um blunt of an allegory as you could get and yeah i just think where it's if anything it's a resurgence and not something just totally coming out of nowhere well, if you are looking for some recommendations, I co-hosted the first season of a podcast called Afro Horror. Afro Horror, it's um, created by my friend Sharde Sellers, my birthday twin. We Our birthday's actually coming up this month. And Oh, uh, Libra. Yeah, I, Libra Scorpio cusp too. You gotta, oh. gotta watch us. <laughs> it's tricky. <laughs> and... Um, yeah she it's it's still going and there it's switched to a format where there's sort of you know more sort of guest co-hosts every week and you know some great people have been on there like Edwin Hodge and um you know from the Purge and just some really awesome guests and Reagan Gomez who's a a friend and, and collaborator yeah just we sort of recommend um and sort of dissect some some famous famous movies from sort of like the black perspective it's not necessarily like a black horror movie but you know some of them are specifically others are just well this is what I felt watching this as a black person thank you so much for coming back my one I had a big poetry question which was revision so I don't know if you want to start there I'm just wondering what your approach is to revision. It's something that I like to talk about because I think a lot of people like to write and we all find it much harder to revise and edit than going back and looking at it critically. It can be a lot harder than just getting it out. So I like to ask people about it. Yeah, well, with this process in particular, just because what I do as a screenwriter is so revision heavy and it's so democratized. The revision that I do, that I've done really across these poems has been minimal in a way. I kind of just write out what I'm feeling slash thinking and I go back over it to make sure the syntax is what I want, to make sure the word choice is what I want. And sometimes I'll have to marinate on it a couple of, of days or so before I really can say, okay, this is what I wanna wanna tweak in this particular line because it just it it, it sounds more punctuated or whatnot. But I guess it's 
it's minimal compared <laughs> on my end compared to, and of course this is strictly talking about the poems. The um, the prose is a slightly different, slightly different animal for me. But part of the reason that I really came back to the poetry is because I just it's it was just so much easier to write from the heart and just feel as though if I make the point that I want to make in the poem, then it's done until I read it again and say, okay, this line could, I could switch the word choice here. But that's kind of, you know, I know it's, it's, it's kind of a, a very simple and not, probably not the most like professional sounding <laughs> answer, <laughs> but my um, sort of my poetry scholarship is somewhat limited. I did some poetry study in English courses and in uh, middle school, high school, a little bit in college, but um, it's a lot more sort of almost me venting on the page mm -hmm. a lot of time. And um, that's just my, my particular process. I'm sure that might be a little infuriating to people who are sort of lifelong dedicated poets <laughs> yeah uh, I don't find it infuriating but I I I do know what you mean because I know when I went to school for writing everyone there had gone like their focus had been English and literature and studies things and I was just like oh I just like writing stuff like I don't I obviously care about the art form overall and like how you know trying to do a good job with it but but I was far less studied in literature than the people who I was in school with. Cause I was like, I, I want to learn other things and write about them. Um, <laughs> so I, I appreciate that about poetry. And I think it gives your, your poetry, a lot of immediacy. Um, you can sort of feel the emotional energy in it. So I, I, I think it works for you. Thank you. Thank you. A, a lot of it, you know, when I used to do them by hand, I would just kind of like, scribbling my heart out in a notebook but now that it's all typing I'm typing about as fast as I can I can think on the first pass and then been going back and just trying to you know clean it up but um yeah I I don't think that that's a bad thing necessarily and I'm glad that that resonates with you I have a feeling that a lot of the people that we study in the canon had the sort of a similar approach to it. And I just feel the more and more education based we get with these art forms, the more we're trying to approximate something that someone did in a very autonomous manner by analyzing it and sometimes overanalyzing it. And the, you know, and, and all art is a conversation, obviously. And if you love something, study it as much as you can. I certainly do. But at the same time, I really do think that the sort of rawness of the art form of poetry is something that can be sort of over-academized, I guess, if that's a word. Yeah. <laughs> and you're, you're, you know, a lot of the time you're trying to express things 
these modes and methods that we borrowed from other poets, which, and we always borrow everything, but the, these modes and methods that we borrow from other poets that work specifically because that was like their gift, that was their lens. And a lot of the times I think, and this is not just in poetry, it's in, in all writing, I think the approach to that can somewhat stifle our ability to find what our own voices, what our own sort of raw thing is, our own sort of motifs that you can identify a Christina Lungel poem because of these specific tenets and this and that. And I just think that everybody has that if they let themselves have that. Yeah, I love that. I think you can hear that um, that sort of voice easily when you think about, I guess what first came to mind for me was rap like their syntax and like the way that the the sentences put together, like you can identify between these different rappers lyrically. Absolutely. And just with the example of, of rap and me being a huge music fan and I love rap and hip hop among a whole bunch of other genres, just the, the whole cadence of it all. That's something that I think written poetry can lose if you are trying to be a little too formal or a little too, okay, I'm going to do it in iambic pentameter. If you write the way you, or find a way to sort of transliterate the way that you speak, then I think you can sort of have a similar, and that's not going to be for every single poem, obviously, but if you have those poems, I think you can have a sort of similar effect as, oh, well, we know this is Megan Thee Stallion because she has that, that thing she does, that blah thing, you know, mm-hmm. just little like like vocal things, little sort of, you know, musical ticks that you can only really have if you're tuned into your own personal rhythm. Tuning into your personal rhythm. You mentioned your kundalini, oh, was it a kundalini awakening? Was that the way you phrased it? Yes, so kundalini awakening, I think more specifically because of the circumstances under which it happened, spontaneous kundalini emergence. Sometimes they call it kundalini emergency. What happened to me was definitely an emergency (laughs) in multiple ways. I was not like seeking it out. I was not ready for it. I had very little sort of um, background on spiritual principles behind it. And the sort of the crystals and meditation sort of school of philosophy is really sort of part and parcel to the kundalini stuff. And my only real introduction to that had been through a friend of mine, a a wonderful friend of mine named Michelle, who's like a big sister to me, who I used to work with when I started working full-time at my alma mater, Drexel, in procurement. And other than that, though, I didn't really have any background for it, but all of a sudden, you know, I started having these really strange sensations and occurrences and things, and I've had, like, weird sensations and occurrences my whole life. I had a really sort of formative experience and I hope I'm not like cutting you off like that if you had a specific question or oh no don't go on I I want to hear all about it yeah because it's kind of a it's kind of a long <laughs> wild and um I'm gonna try not to let it be convoluted as I tell it but you know I've had like weird supernatural experiences that I didn't want to necessarily chalk up 
to being supernatural up until the, this this point this would have been summer of 2018 i believe which was the summer before i realized that i was having a kundalini emergency but summer 2018 i was invited on a road trip to vegas to uh, go to this infamous haunted museum which I didn't know what I do, what I had no idea what it was. I didn't even get a chance to really like look it up. And the story of how that happened was kind of, you know, a long and wild one, which I'll tell some other time. But um, <laughs> probably in written form. I had a sort of weird awakening sort of bubblings up happening there. You know, the tour guide said something to the effect of sometimes the house pick, find somebody in the group to pick on and the house picked on me. And after I sort of escaped that ordeal, <laughs> barely it felt like, um, I sort of was like, okay, well, go surreal. And that's all I really need to know. Good for me. Um, I didn't identify as a medium or anything like that until the following summer when I started voice channeling, which means information from outside of myself comes through me vocally. And it's the kind of stuff that like holds up, like, for example, just something I'm trying to think of something, something recently. Um, I, I got this, this, this phrase that was sounding like dwelling in the, the city of like Oksha or something like that and I was like I don't know what that is so I tried to google it this would have been I think right before I, I left Los Angeles um in the spring and so I googled the phrase dwelling in the city of Oksha and then something that says oh the city of Moksha Varanasi India and I'm like okay and I look at that and then it turns out that Moksha is the Sanskrit word for enlightenment in Hinduism. Just like something, and I'm like, okay, this is this is a thing. Like this is like <laughs> spiritual breadcrumbs of information. And I've just had sort of just a, a weird, obviously somewhat like convoluted experience of sort of those sorts of events, the synchronicities they talk about and seeing the triple numbers and 1111 and 777 all the time um really for the past several years and that just sort of assuring me that you know what I am experiencing is sort of a divine journey even though some people would still argue <laughs> that there's no proof of that and you should probably take something to sedate yourself <laughs> but you know my my experience albeit having been very difficult physically mentally emotionally it was almost like a growing pain it's almost like you know all the discomfort things that you go through in puberty but it's for a good reason and it's just it, I just I found it so um funny because I really kind of started referring to my Saturn return, which I know this podcast is called, uh, it's always Saturn. My Saturn return, which would have been that, it would have started around that, that summer 2019, when I was like turning 28-ish. It was almost like a spiritual puberty in a way. Mm -hmm. And like, 
real adulthood and as millennials i know i feel like we have a hard and i'm not sure if you're millennial or we don't really like strip away sort of what our parents have kind of placed on us and you know what our peers have placed on us and what society has placed on us because you know society is always trying to define the millennial generation with those clickbaity awful titles about what we're always doing wrong if we don't really sort of take a beat to divest and really figure out who we are when we're not on these hamster wheels that existed before we got here that we're kind of like plopped on then um we're never really going to know who we are as people so i've kind of looked at this saturn return which coincided with this kundalini experience as just autonomy mode and me really getting to know who I am as a person and getting to really identify the the places where I've been sort of made to bend and this is I've, I've suspected since 2015 that I was non-binary but I didn't come out until during this process you know just things things like that it was around 20, 2020 when I publicly started you know, identifying and changing my pronouns and stuff like that. It's just really funny that it took like five years after me telling my my good friend Melissa that I think I might be non-binary. But I think part of what stopped me was just not wanting to have to deal with explaining things to people. And it felt like I would have to stop my life to explain things to the people in my life, which wasn't really the case and doesn't have to be the case. But in the kundalini process and i've seen all sorts of like memes about people doing ayahuasca and then like Mm -hmm. just not being able to (laughs) there was no ayahuasca involved in the making of my kundalini experience i did have a roommate who did dmt in the house that might have had something to do (laughs) this happen secondhand dmt (laughs) yeah i might have caught some like stray particles or something but yeah it's just it kind of it kind of forces you to divest from all the things that aren't you including your job sometimes if that's really not you including your friend group if that's not you and you're just kind of picking up you know straight people wherever you're at and a lot of what we consider the sort of you know perceived sometimes perceived psychosis or whatever is there to scare off people who would not be there for you if what you were going through was actually like a mental crisis mm-hmm. and that is kind of um what <laughs> like that's kind of you know I have a a, a poem um in the in the collection which references BH, BHC Alhambra, which is a real hospital um, hmm. that I spent some time in because in the West, people don't understand how to cope with these symptoms. In Western medicine, if you say you're seeing angels or you're receiving messages, it's automatically something that you need to take the pill for. And they don't really have a process to distinguish, you know, is this a spirit, like they will not affirm a spiritual process where in other places in the world, particularly in the East, they would. 
Mm -hmm. And they would have a whole ancient tradition to vet this. And a good friend of mine who I actually came to find um, just via via research, a a PhD named Kylie Harris, who's in Australia. Um, She was involved in the making of this documentary called Crazy Wise, which is so brilliant. I think think it's on Gaia, but I think you can also just also access it on Vimeo. And it is just one of the most remarkable pieces of research documentarianism that I have ever seen in my life because it follows people through an arc of, well, is this something that you can recover from with or without medical intervention? And sometimes, the medical intervention is what stops the recovery. And of course, it's up to people to try it to see if, you know, go to the doctor and see if that is what is working. And if that's what's working, then it's probably something else. You know what I mean? But if that is not conducive, and if if you find that you're more functional in some ways, if you find that you're more clear-headed, which a lot of people won't believe, because if your behavior changes, then that's that's a symptom. No, it's sometimes it's just a necessary change. It's a personal evolution. You know, I know that's very sort of controversial to to say, and you know, mental illness is very mental illness is very real, but not everything that is treated as mental illness is mental illness. You know. Yeah, so that's just a very long spiel about about <laughs> Kundalini. I think that's fascinating, and I'm—I mean, you're in the right place of <laughs> in terms of people who are in agreement that that is not necessarily a mental illness. I mean, I—it's tough because I've definitely been in a position where it's like it's a fine line to tread because, like you said, when it is mental illness and medical intervention is required, then then that's. T- that's really hard. So like, you know, no one needs my two cents steering them away from that. But at the same time, sometimes I'm like, I don't, I don't think people you think are crazy are crazy. (laughs) And I mean, I have a few people who are natural mediums in my life. So it doesn't sound crazy to me at all that you, that you hear uh, or see things that are not accessible to everyone. I'm going to tell you a, a really weird story. <laughs> and it, I think it'll be a good segue into another topic. My my Saturn return was probably around this time. I started having like all of these really crazy synchronicities and I won't, <laughs> I won't get into like the whole list, but this was probably 2000, early 2014. There was this Ghanaian Hare Krishna who sold flowers right in front of my office in um, downtown where I worked. And he and I would talk all the time because I smoked cigarettes and I would go outside to smoke a cigarette and I would talk to him and he was really cool. And we would talk about spirituality and we would talk about Ghana because I had visited Ghana when I was in college. So we would just like talk about soccer (laughs) because the Ghanaian soccer team was just a topic. We got to be friends and one day, I was walking into my office and he was like, Christina, Christina, I met your father. And I was like, oh, no way. And I didn't, I wanted to know what he had to say. So I didn't stop him. I was like, go on. 
And he was like, yeah, yeah. He said, my daughter works in this building and she always buys us flowers. So I wanted to stop by and get some flowers for her. I was like, he said, it was me or just like someone else who works in the building. And he was like, he was like, oh, well, I said, do you mean Christina? And he said, yeah, Christina, the one who went to Ghana. And there's only like four women who work in that office. (laughs) Only like, I, I was the only person who could have fit the description. And I was like, okay, Hari, was anybody with you when this happened? And he was like, yeah, my friend was, was here. And I was like, can you call me when, when your friend is here next and I'll come outside. And he's like, okay. So he gets his friend and he calls me and I was like, can you describe what this man looked like? And he describes my dad. And I was like, but here's the thing, Hari, my dad died like 13 years ago. And he was like, okay. And I showed him a picture of my dad and the, his friend who was American started screaming. And he was like, you know, like, like not like scared screaming, but like, oh shit, like, oh shit, that is the person like freaking out. And I was like, are you like, are you fucking serious? And Hari just laughed. And he was like, Christina in Ghana, this kind of thing happens all the time. And he was like, our ancestors they visit. And he was like, I know that sounds weird, but this happens all the time. It's not weird. I got real paranoid for a while after that. I was like, is someone following me that like knows information about me? Like, how did this happen? Like what's going on? And my, my coworkers were all like, that's so cool. It's like a Hallmark moment. Like your ghost dad came to visit and they all thought it was perfectly reasonable. And I was like, since when am I the like most skeptical person in a room? <laughs> especially (laughs) why are you all just like fine with this idea that my father was corporeal enough to buy flowers (laughs) and and it was weird because he said oh my daughter buys me flowers all the time which I do I I would bring flowers to my dad's grave that I bought there so it was just like this really and everyone else was just like yeah this makes sense and I was like this doesn't make any sense (laughs) sorry that was a very long story to say that when you said, oh, these are things that like other, other world or not other worlds, parts of the world, they have an understanding of these things. And like, it's part of your social fabric and not something that either gets siloed off and like, oh, you're crazy or whatever, but it was wild. And that was probably the most extreme thing of like a long range of really crazy things that happened that over like a six month span probably I guess it it connects back to what you said there and then also I wanted to ask you about you said that you had studied African studies and um, your one poem mentions the Sankofa bird and the Twi language so I wanted to ask you about that as well and it kind of connected to my Hari being well his name wasn't really Hari he just calls himself Hari because he's a Hari Krishna (laughs) but yeah he was from Ghana (laughs) Yeah, so I, so Africana studies is kind of the diasporic version of that, and a lot of what I focused on was African-American, but it was still under Africana studies, and if I had really been able to expand, I probably would have done more sort of globally um, under that as well, but the word Sankofa has been, it's something that pops up in a lot of pro-black or you know black positive spaces and there's there are symbols that correspond 
to it. The, the second, I don't know if you've ever seen it. Sometimes they have these on wrought iron railings, but it looks almost like a little swirly heart that swirls inward and then swirls outward. And then there's also the Sankofa bird, which is a bird that almost looks like a goose, but there's like a little, little ball that I'm not sure if it's a berry or what in its mouth. And its head is turned backwards and it looks almost like it's kind of about to drop the little ball toward its tail. You know, there's a, a, a very sort of legendary film um, called Sankofa by Haile Jirima, who is a really well-celebrated Black filmmaker. And that is about a Black woman who was, I, I, I'm not sure if it was, it would have been the 80s or 90s, but she is transported from her present day. She's a model when she, in the beginning, she's being like, filmed by this white photographer in this very sexy photo shoot or whatever by the you know they call them castles on the coast where they would actually hold the enslaved Africans before they were transported across the Atlantic to be to be sold here she is sort of flippant about it and it's just a very sort of disrespectful <laughs> thing to do and then she's transported spiritually back to enslavement times so as I have come to and by the way that's probably one criterion or or something if you want to see it um, anybody who's listening as well but that word it it has multiple translations when you look it up it really the one that sort of resonated with me in my heart that I came across was it is okay to go back and retrieve what has been lost. That really is sort of like a um, spiritual theme, I think for a lot of people who are black and finding their spirituality in this particular age, which you know is considered the age of Aquarius and sort of the new age spirituality terminology and a lot of black people are sort of connecting to certain West African traditions spiritualities like Ifa which I'm not a practitioner or initiate but I am a appreciator and researcher and I'm fascinated by just by the beliefs of my my ancestors and and all that and um in a way in a way I really feel like there's something of a purge of religion in its most oppressive forms, um, which is something that I have been dealing with on a personal level as somebody who was raised in a very spiritually oppressive, abusive Christian household. My family was Baptist and they're like, <laughs> they're like the sort of the, the hardest sect to deal with out of the Protestants. If you ask pretty much any of the Protestants, uh, the Baptists, <laughs> you got to look out for. And I actually, I, I, my newest short story piece, Rebuke, is actually about that specifically. That's kind of what this journey has been about artistically, not just, you know, going back and reclaiming what was lost in terms of the culture that was stripped from African people, but reclaiming the freedom 
that was in it and a lot of the self-determination principles that were in it that I think are accessible to us and that those ancestor spirits want us to have, whether we're specifically practitioners or not. Something that I was actually just talking about, the show Reservation Dogs, because I am, you know, I have Creole um, ancestry, which includes Cherokee on my maternal grandmother's side, Creole, Cherokee, Afro-Cuban. The indigenous sort of spirituality as shown in that show, which is, it's such a beautiful show, Sterling Harjo, Taika Waititi, and, you know, um, the cast is incredible. Um, they really have this very easy and amicable relationship with their ancestors' spirits, the characters who communicate with the ancestors. Um, one of the main kids, Bear, he has an, a warrior ancestor spirit who encourages him and gives him sort of roundabout wisdom when he needs it. And one of the aunties, Pokta, actually just had spirit communication with one of her ancestors who sort of kind of like initiated her into elderhood or whatever in terms of the wisdom she was allowed to pass on to another one of the kids, Willie Jack. And I was just really blown away by the accuracy of what that ancestor communication is like as somebody who has it directly, who has vo voice channeled conversations with spirits that, not just spirits in my line, I have channeled countless <laughs> in this experience, but especially the ones that are in my line, they really love to make us laugh. They, it's, it's like it, the way they would treat us really if we were sat on their knee asking for advice or asking them a question. It's sort of that sort of eternal love and, and beauty. And I just thought about how, you know, reading about magical realism in English class and why that is such a, it's such a BIPOC you know, Black Indigenous POC genre. And, you know, this is something I talked about on a a, a, a web show that I did with uh, my friend, with good friend Sapphire Sandalo. Uh, she has a show called Ouija Wednesdays. Just what colonialism has done to sort of take the spiritual realities of people of color and turn it into superstition it's just it's 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 really interesting when you think about that because even groups in Europe that were oppressed like the Celts have very similar relationships with spirits mm -hmm. and direct communication to God and I'm just like it's very funny that when there's a people with a beautiful culture, you know, and not just people of color, like the, the, the Celts are white, but they have a very indigenous culture. They stay where they're at. They're in love with the land and them being oppressed by the British. Whenever somebody wants to take something from someone, they attack their relationship with God. They attack affirmation, direct affirmation that they know what God wants from them and expects from them. And they have to play sort of the middleman there. And mm -hmm. that I think really sort of explains just sort of the, the, the big old mess that's been made of spirituality 
sort of post-colonialism, post-conquering and all of that and why I think dominant cultures that come from colonialism, that come from that sort of oppression history, why they kind of gaslight people who have these beliefs into thinking that they're just playing make-believe. And it's because they can control your reality. They can control everything about you. Hearing you say that to me, sorry, I hope I wasn't like interrupting. Oh, no, no. To me, I think like, not necessarily like more insidious than that, but it's kind of like they cut off their nose to spite their face because in order to make that a convincing reality, they also have to divorce from their own relationship to their ancestors and their own, because everyone was indigenous to somewhere. Everyone came from a, a people who had that direct relationship to God in the earth. And I certainly wouldn't try to compare it because of the radically different ways that this occurred between like white people or, you know, black people who were forcibly taken from that. But there's, when you talk about like reclaiming, you know, that's something that like, I very much like I, I feel bereft that I don't have that sort of historical connection to what my ancestors would have practiced as their uh, relationship to God and the earth either. Like I, I mean, I don't have the slightest idea and that's more just because it's like assimilate and what we do. And like, this is, this is what you believe here. You know, like, like, I, I understand it was much more of a choice on my ancestors part to like abandon whatever they had and come here obviously. But um, it's still the sum total of all of us and most of us in America being disconnected from that relationship. It's, it's a shame. And it's like, it's just, you know, fucked up because what they did to <laughs> fuck up other people in the process fucked up all their future generations which is this karmic justice really <laughs> it's yeah. still fucked up overall it feels to me looking at the world like there's so much healing painful revolutionary growing pain sort of healing but it seems like a lot of people are trying to heal that sort of ancestral trauma and move forward I guess we kind of have to to create a new world with what's going on absolutely and something that I think and and thank you thank you so much for 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 adding on to that and I think you make some really incredible points especially about people sort of you know like you said cutting off their noses by their face and what I think a lot of people forget is that humans evolve too and that happens period humans move forward period in spite of what we have done in spite of ourselves we move forward and survival as the law of nature is part and parcel to us too so that evolution is not an overnight thing that happens is not like genes change in a single carrier then all of a sudden the species has changed that happens gradually over time and I really think that the way that we as humans evolve like everything else on this planet it just registers a certain way that 
is sort of this spiritual process that 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 is how we move forward that's how we are evolving it's like who knows what it feels like to be the i don't i don't know what they they call them the the little things that came out of the ocean to be the first <laughs> land dwelling land dwelling creatures but who knows what that process feels like and who knows how much of it is them just just doing what they want to do versus them being guided by a force of nature to do something they wouldn't otherwise do in order to progress and that's exactly why i think the idea of psychic phenomena and psychic guidance spiritual guidance kundalini all that makes sense it's how humanity evolves and especially if you look at sort of the principles behind it and spiritual people really being, and not the only driving force, anybody with, with the most basic sense can really see what human beings are doing to the planet and to each other. But being affirmed in that in a way <laughs> that lets you know that this is actually sort of what nature wants for us in terms of, of, of how we protect the planet and therefore ourselves. I really, it almost makes it kind of, kind of, I don't want to say obvious because it's not in, unless you're in those shoes, but it does, it makes it kind of easy to accept that this is a real thing, that championing sort of the things that make human beings human, which is caring for one another and making sure that we all progress together as a species instead of you know fighting over ridiculous things and destroying ourselves and everything else in our path the fact that that is sort of what the basis of team woo woo <laughs> is <laughs> um it just it just it makes it it makes me kind of sad that it's it's harder for people on this side of things to be taken seriously when I think a lot of what we believe makes a lot of sense to any rational person it's just our certainty of it that kind of it, and how how we get that certainty that is the 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 point for debate but I don't think at the core most of of what's actually important about people who sort of live on this side of spirituality and belief. I don't think there's much, you know, that is too far off, even the existence of aliens. I mean, look at the Pentagon footage of that UFO that just kind of came out in the middle of a pandemic that nobody really got to unpack. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like That was wild. It was just like, by the way. <laughs> yeah. But whatever. That one, I think it's like the least in the basically infinite universe that something else is smart as smart or smarter than us enough to get to here. Like that's, that's the least absurd thing in, in the world like to imagine. I, I never understand. Like, I'm not like, it's not a topic. I mean, I can go down that rabbit hole, but I, I, I don't have like a personal obsession with UFOs, but it's just one of those ones where I'm just like, well, of course that's more likely than not. Like it has to be <laughs> yeah it's like the idea that humanity 
on this planet is the best the universe could come up with in terms of intelligence capability. So it's kind of absurd and a little, little arrogant to me. Yeah. <laughs> Very ethnocentric on a global scale. <laughs> yeah. That's a good, good segue to talk about. Uh, I wanted to ask you about your book cover because when when I look at it, to me, I'm like, oh, it's it's like a a crystal on some cool fabric. But I don't know if that's accurate to to what it is. But that's like what I what I first saw. But I also think it kind of like the if if it is a crystal, looks like a wrapped up like sort of Buddha figure, and the patterns in the background remind me a lot of this channeled artwork well it reminds me kind of of kente cloth but also of this channeled artwork of sacred alphabet of Alison gray i don't know if you're familiar with her and those were all of my first impressions of the cover art and then when i saw that you designed the cover art i was like oh i absolutely have to ask them about this well yes so i have my my copy here too you are ten thousand percent right about it being crystals on a cool little background so what I did was I took sort of my own crystal collection this is not all of them I think this might have been most of of what I brought with me um, from LA I took my crystals I arranged them on just this purple striped face towel that I have this like microfiber face towel that I have from 99 cents only and just staged a photograph and I artified the photograph in a photo editing software and it gave it you know these these patterns are sort of I don't know if it's it's classified as like AI art because I didn't sit there and do them <laughs> but it's kind of a it's kind of a happy accident that they look like glyphs in that's these, amazing and 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 in these patterns and just to sort of take you through it this big tower here is a selenite tower that I have and it's sitting on top of a piece of blue agate. This right here is a small darker amethyst that I have and sort of behind where the courtney is, that's a piece of pyrite. And this sort of chunk here going into the corner by my last name is a, another piece of amethyst, which is amethyst is sort of my, my crystal. I adore everything purple. That's just... <laughs> Purple is, you know, like that song, I'm, I'm Blue Dabadee. If they had a purple version, that would be me. I had sort of conceptualized a few different versions of this. I knew it was going to be based on a photo that I took, if anything, because I just really wanted to be hands-on with it, even though the publisher is awesome and they provide covers for a lot of their artists. I just wanted this to be top-down, side-to-side, just me. But I also knew I didn't have the materials to hand draw it or anything like that. If I could even attempt that, if I and if I did, I would even attempt that. But you know, at least the photo and the editing myself was me because I just really wanted this to be sort of reflective of a personal evolution. So that's kind of just the 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 origin story behind that. That's really cool. I wanted to ask about the prose at the end because the book is mostly poetry, but I really enjoyed the prose pieces as well. The year way thing. I hope yeah. <laughs> that doesn't change the 
change the whole tone of the conversation too much to some, like, it's a, it's a hard right turn. But um, My husband, when we first met, he was in a, a band and someone invited him to a meeting, like, like, of, uh, you know, a particular company. And he came home and he was like, I think I'm going to do this. Like, I think this will be, you know, how, how I can afford things. But he didn't, I was like, please don't like, I, I will we'll find other ways to make ends meet. Cause, cause my dad had done the same company for a bit. And I just knew it was like a big time suck. So it was like, we'll find other things, but I've noticed that it tends to be a draw multi-level marketing stuff tends to be a big draw for artists. And I wonder if it's because our work has is so financially unstable that was kind of that was kind of and it's funny because the idea that I could retire at 30 was not one that I came up with myself it was one that was sort of um pitched to me and uh, it's just I'm nowhere close to being able to retire but I'm probably closer than I would be if I had stayed with your way um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I also think that artists are the most ambitious people. And I know this is controversial because we live in a STEM world, but I think artists are the most driven, passionate, and ambitious people you're ever going to meet. I think that that sort of intersection between this is going to free you to do your passion for the rest of your life and of course they pitch you people well oh my you know the person that I signed up under he signed up under somebody who you know just makes movies for fun and can fund them himself and (laughs) it's just it's such an and there's a million of these companies you know not just the one I was involved with but ones that the ones that would sell the smoothies and have the like the the health clubs and stuff and and it's just it is really just the cruelest I think capitalist joke to play on people who are really just trying to make ends meet and also people who have a hard time functioning within regular corporate structures so and a lot of those people are neuroatypical too and that's why something that's less structured is more attractive something that's less rigid something where you can be your own boss and do things the way you kind of naturally do things is more of an attractive draw so I just I think there were just a lot of factors that got me caught up in that the biggest of which being that I was sort of on my own financially like I really had to provide for myself and I like I grew up very poor I was on public assistance and from the time I was matriculated in college I did work study and I worked my maximum amount of hours I actually ran out of hours um, <laughs> my senior year and had a had a uh, move under student employment, which was not from the, the the Fed. It was from, you know, just regular employment budget from the school. When you are kind of sort of in, in that position where you got to take care of yourself, you don't really have a safety net, then you're just going to try whatever comes your way. Because if you don't, then you're not trying hard enough. 
And there are just, there are a lot of people who I think get caught, you know, there are people who are like first generation Americans who are in very similar situations and they're here specifically to change their situation and, and bring financial independence and, and opportunities to their family. And they make up a lot of this particular company. People who do not come from any sort of wealth at all. And they make it seem like this is what's gonna free you and your family for generations to come. It's almost, I'm almost a little, like feeling a little sadness in my heart for the people who are, well, first of all, the people who are still in it, because from what I understand, it's it's not going away. Mm -hmm. And I know people who are, I've met people who are in this company for second for a second generation. And eventually you do figure out what's going on at the same time. It's like, well, I'm in on it. I know how it works and I still need to build that wealth for my family. Mm -hmm. So it really is sort of like a pitting impoverished people against impoverished people, you know? I was just sort of thinking about this metaphor for crabs in a bucket, which is specifically, people use that specifically against the Black community. Just I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but they've compared the Black community to crabs in a bucket. It's like, oh, if you see one rising, you, 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 you pull it down instead of trying to follow it out. That it's so awful and offensive. And one of the most incredible responses I've seen to that is you have neglected to talk about the fact that a crab's natural habitat is not that bucket. So they're really not responsible for what their erratic behavior is inside of that bucket. And I wish I could remember who, you know, I saw it somewhere on social media. I wish I could remember specifically who said that because it's so brilliant. I kind of, something kind of dawned on me that expounded upon that. We also neglect the fact that the fewer crabs, you know, the more crabs, the more distance between you and the rim that increases when there's just a few crabs left. And those crabs out there are not reaching back for you. So mm -hmm. <laughs> there's just, a, you, know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? And there's just a, a whole just fraught sort of doggy dog kind of ethos that people are forced into. And really the people that you are preying on, whether, you whether you're conscious of it or not, are the people immediately they have you go through all your friends and family who are going to be mm -hmm. probably in the same financial situation as you and just as desperate to get out so very 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 um, <laughs> sort of sort of um unethical just business model if you can even call it that and it's like I I, I made it out with a good story <laughs> mm -hmm. and a, you know some time wasted and a hundreds of dollars as opposed to thousands of dollars wasted so I do consider myself one of the lucky ones but I just gotta kind of pray for the people who are still involved because there's some stuff going on under the surface yeah actually when you, you find out like the kind of fundamentalist part and then 
you find out, you know, the the family being involved with a lot of the political hoo-ha that we've been experiencing the past several years. Yeah, so. it's gross. And I feel like every conversation I have just uh, like sort of peters out into like fucking capitalism. <laughs> like so uh such a such a soul crushing system to live in. Yeah, that's why I had to come back to poetry to find my people because Hollywood was not having Socialist Bay um, <laughs> for a while. But um, I'll be back. <laughs> sort of where I might differ from a lot of anti-capitalists is just because there haven't been any ethical billionaires, I don't think that there there could never be. I think an ethical billionaire is somebody who makes that much money without exploiting people, like makes it off of their art, pays the people involved as equitably as possible, caps their own wealth and directly redistributes. Yeah. Everything that, you know, over a certain amount. And I'm not going to lie. I kind of foresee a future where that is really the only way to do business where people because you talk about the free market you talk about voting with your wallets well we're fed up with capitalism and you're not going to let us vote it out with our ballots so if we just kind of stop working with the gross companies I say is I have a book on Amazon (laughs) (laughs) but you know the, the goal is eventually to move away from there and I think that intelligent people who really want their businesses to be based on doing good things are going to see that and they're going to the next sort of model because you know we've got every widget and gadget we could ever really want and with the iPhone 47 (laughs) being the same as the last 23 models the next sort of step in innovation is how you innovate ethics in your business model because Mm -hmm. you know people can 3d 3d print things that people's whole companies were built on providing now now it's about how you contribute to the world. I think that's the next frontier. So I, I agree. I spent a long time at a corporate job that I just left a couple months ago. And the entire time I was like, literally, I mean, like talking to the CEO and like, like bothering everyone all the time about conscious capitalism and how you could do better and you could be ethical and you could like, not only would it be the right thing to do but it'd be good for business because the tide is turning and that like younger people will pay more for things for an ethical thing you know like <laughs> the, the so like true. we really are fed up with the shit like we really do want an ethical world and at a certain point I just realized like oh like this is never they're never going to change their outlook and like I was a very small fish in that pond so I was like oh I should leave because I'm not changing things here and like that's I guess when you have to decide what to do but I do agree like I mean people joke about wanting some sort of total collapse but I don't think people actually think that through (laughs) Um, so I think the only reasonable solution would have to be just changing the system to be more ethical as opposed to being like oh well 
it's just a race and start over like that's not a thing yeah at this point it's generosity for the guillotine so i think that people are <laughs> I generosity i hope so. not to be so bleak we're getting close to time and i wanted to ask you if you could read us a poem sundowners sundowners i really I, enjoyed that one this is one of my favorites too i really enjoy doing this sort of musical thing this sort of lyrical rhythmic thing so thank you for choosing this one i i don't think i've really gotten to read this one out loud so sundowners there is a home away away yet not a house do say do say they'll take you there and daren't care if you survive a day a day and this is it, your lot, your lot, the piss and shit, no pot, no pot. You've gotten yours, atrophy claws, hold on to what you got, you got. Know this before you die, you die. There is no more, says I, says I, to comfort you the way you do, a child who starts to cry, to cry. Avenge yourself in blood, in blood. Drink to your health, a flood, a flood. The crimson moon will see you soon and pull you from the mud, the mud. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. I really think that's a good one for this spooky season, which is my favorite time of year. I don't like necessarily when everybody's immediately about the skeletons and ghosts and stuff because I I think it's creepier if you let it build yeah I'm now I'm kind of like October 1st is the first of Halloween I'm that person okay it's also, it's also <laughs> my um my birthday month I turn mm. um, you're a Libra I am Libra Scorpio cusp I am okay. October 21st I'll be 31 10 days before Halloween happy almost birthday Thank you. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to this one being just inherently better than the last one. I kind of had a very public sort of emotional purge that month after my, my for a full month, I was actually trying to start a non-union strike and it failed, but I at least tried. It's very hard. Organizing is very, very hard. It did teach me something. It kind of taught me that I really have to establish who I am and have sort of my reputation precede me into a lot of these Hollywood rooms. Otherwise, I'm just going to be on the same sort of hamster wheel of bullshit. I think that when people who are artists are known as artists before they get here they're treated with a certain level of respect and the irony is that I kind of gave that up to <laughs> pursue the Hollywood thing because I knew I would have to sort of if I had any shot of making it I have to just give that my all and learn learn all of that but you know the universe was like uh-uh no you were an artist first which means you're always an artist so and, and always an artist first you know, before being a profesh. So this kind of has been like a, uh, a come to God moment. And mm -hmm. this whole past year has been 
super, just super validating as a writer. It's been so validating. I've had more validation and celebration doing what I've always done as a writer, more or less since, you know, I, I, the, the book of IP came out in May. It was, I think the first time it went up on, on, on Amazon. And just in that span of a few months, I have been validated way more. And I realized how much, I guess, I was sort of gaslit. Like a lot of sort of making sure that you get somebody's all for the lowest sum that you can is training them via gaslighting in that mm-hmm. industry. <laughs> yeah. So I just had- It I seems like it. a very abusive industry in general. Oh yeah, <laughs> it is It is incredibly abusive. And I, that's really all I can, I can't go into details right now, but that had a lot of lot to do with that sort of meltdown slash breakthrough that I had sort of around this time last year when I fired my reps as I I mentioned in the book and I've not looked back since and I have no regrets Um, that's awesome and the the literature thing is it's here to stay it's like if I didn't have this path I would have just been in a mode and I would have been too I'm not going to say afraid but I would have maybe been too complacent to come back to it. This has really just reminded me that this is how I am myself. This is how I get to write in an, a, a, a way that is not overly democratized. This is how I get to put who I am on the page for real and not have to mitigate or apologize. And I get validated by an audience who loves me wrong which means they really love me and not just a a Frankenstein mashup of something that started out with me and isn't quite me by the time it makes it to them so Mm -hmm. in a way it's almost like finding spiritual family I love that I wanted to ask you about Saturn because we always talk about Saturn you mentioned your Saturn return is there anything else you want to add about Saturn (laughs) Yeah, so music and film and all of it, they're all part of my paths. I really want to do a musical biopic one day for No Doubt. My favorite album by them is Return of Saturn. And I got to shout out my older sister, who is like the biggest No Doubt stand on the face of the planet and the reason why I know them. I was actually researching because it just took me till this process to figure out what that even meant. And I was like, oh, I wonder if Gwen was going through her Saturn return when the music was written for this. Mm-hmm. And she was, she was. So I post Saturn return kind of got this little art worm to do a no doubt biopic one day, fingers crossed, that is centered around return of Saturn one of the best albums of all time and I really I feel like Michael Monroe is Gwen Stefani's doppelganger so I would cast her Riz Ahmed is Tony Canal mm. Lucas Hedges is Tom Dumont <laughs> who else oh Jack Quaid is Adrian Young that would be perfect oh we um, need a Gavin Rossdale in there oh do you know Dana Cornswett from God from Hollywood from Netflix's 
Hollywood, Ryan Murphy's Hollywood. I don't yeah. know. I've been sort of like orbiting him. We've got like mutual friends. He's from Philly too. <laughs> he's not British, but he he's just who I'm seeing for for Gavin Rossdale. Okay. I don't, I don't know why, but yeah, yeah. And I don't know if Micah sings, if Micah Monroe sings, but if she doesn't. I would lay down the vocals because I think I do a pretty decent one, Stefani. Oh my goodness. I would love to hear that. I might. I don't know. I don't know if we have time. (laughs) (laughs) We've got five minutes. Okay. (laughs) If you want to. I would love to close this off with some no doubt. (laughs) Sure. Sure. I just want to take you away from everyone and keep you stashed under my pillow and then I take you out simply for I'm not gonna go <laughs> it's really but good though thank you that's like thank you one of my favorite songs of all time I never listened to that album very much my first cd I ever bought was tragic kingdom when I was in fourth grade um, but then I, I, I didn't, that was the only album of theirs that I think I really ever like hooked into. So I should, I'm going to give return of Saturn a listen. I should, since Saturn's like, obviously a large theme in my life. <laughs> yeah. I think you'll connect to it. They have some of the, the best music videos. It was her pink hair era too. Yeah. She looked awesome. then. I remember that much about it. But Yeah no doubt return of saturn that's sort of my my wish list awesome well i i look forward to the day that i see that in theaters and i i believe it's gonna happen thank you you'll be at the premiere really (laughs) that'd be so cool (laughs) do you have anything else do you have anything you want to promote we have the book of vital poems from um alien buddha press you can get it on amazon but is there anything else that you'd like to shout out yeah so thank and thank you so much for the for the promotion of that I'm so so um so grateful for that I the the short story that I mentioned rebuke is in the alien buddha house of horrors anthology which actually just became available today like a couple minutes before I logged on here to have you there it is very trigger heavy this story lots of uh abuse sort of um allusions to abuse and some some harsh language because it's written in the voice of a, a a very unhinged character but it's a piece that is very I think necessary and kind of timely just uh, in terms of what we've been, what we've seen from Jeanette McCurdy and some of the abuse that she suffered at the hands of her mother in a, a Mormon household. Yeah, that is in House of Horrors. It's number five. Along with, I just want to shout out the other finalists, um, Robert J.W., Ada Wofford, and N.J. Gallegos. Um, congratulations to y'all. You did incredible work so please check them out there with alien buddha as well awesome thank you so so much for your time i'm so excited this has been such a such a cool cool conversation 